0: It was September 18th, 2007. It was one month after he had received the news from doctors that he only had three to six months left to live. Professor Randy Pausch stood in the auditorium, jam-packed with people. There were family and friends. There were students, there were fellow faculty members at Carnegie Mellon University. And he presented a lecture. The lecture was originally entitled, How to Achieve Your Childhood Dreams, but since it has become known simply as the Last Lecture. And Randy did such a phenomenal job of pouring out the deepest desires of his heart that the video of that final lecture, it went viral very very quickly. Influencers like Oprah, she praised the speech and then it eventually became a New York Times best-selling book. And that speech that was offered on that particular day, 15 years later, it continues to inspire people around the world to live a bigger and a better life. A teacher delivering a final lecture, at the point of their retirement, or in Randy's case, at the very end of their life, it's been a practice that's been around for a long, long time. In fact, if you look back, you'll begin to notice that Jewish leaders and prophets and rabbis, they practice this as well in the ancient Jewish world. And not only would they take an opportunity to offer final words to their followers, their disciples, on how to best live their lives, but oftentimes they would also conclude with what was known as a departing prayer. And this is what we find Jesus doing with his disciples in John chapter 17. Just prior to crossing the Kidron Valley to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane, where He would be portrayed by Judas with a kiss and then arrested by Roman soldiers, Jesus prayed one last time with His disciples. And for centuries now, the words that Jesus prayed over His disciples, they brought hope and they have brought inspiration to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, there are many who claim that this is the holy of holies of all of Scripture, One scholar goes so far as to say this, he says that this is the most sacred passage in all four Gospels. Now, I don't know exactly where this passage ranks in order of importance, but I do know this, every time I listen to Jesus pray over his disciples, it inspires me personally to live a bigger and a better life. Let me explain to you, this prayer of Jesus that was offered on that Thursday night some 2,000 years ago, it reminds me that I have a purpose in this world, a purpose that is far greater than making money or making a name for myself. And what is that purpose? Well, my purpose, your purpose, is not to make much of ourselves, it is to make much of God, that we are to bring God glory. And how exactly we do, we do that. We do it at the exact same way that Jesus did. Listen to his words, John chapter 17 and verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And being obedient to God's plan, even up to the point of sacrificing his own life for our sins, he brought glory to the Father. And in the same way, we bring glory to God when we... Fulfill the responsibility that has been entrusted to us all the way to the very end. And what is the work that has been entrusted to us? Well, the work is this. It is to make known to all people that eternal life is available through this one who brought glory to God on the cross, Jesus Christ. Now, what do we mean by eternal life? Well, we often think of eternal life in chronological terms, don't we? We we think about a life that goes on beyond the grave endlessly. And yes, that's true. That is a part of eternal life. But what Jesus prays about on this particular occasion, it points to something far more significant. And so I want you to continue to listen to his words. Verse 1 through 3, he says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who have give, you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just about living forever. Eternal life is about living in a vibrant, deep relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the light that we're experiencing or to experience forever. Now, some people, too many people, I would argue, if they believe in God, they view God as some distant being who's not that interested in their lives unless He is upset with them. And so as a result, when it comes to their relationship or how they relate to God, their major objection the is, objective is this: I just want to fly under the radar screen, right? And so to fly under the radar screen, they do their very best to live a moral life. They do their very best to do some good deeds. They may even show up at a church service from time to time. Whatever it takes to make sure that they just keep that unrelatable, distant, supreme being somewhat satisfied with them. And that's their take. And to me, it's sad. Because they are missing out on so very much. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to be with us so that we might know that God is not distant and God wants to be known. He wants to be known. He came so that we might understand that God desires to share a relationship with each one of us, much like a husband and wife share or much like two best friends share. He wants us to know that God takes an interest in our lives in the same way a loving, caring parent takes an interest in their kids' lives. He wants us to know that we can come to him with all of our joys, with all of our hopes, with all of our fears, with all of our failures. He wants us to know that this God, he's not distant, he's close, he listens, he comforts, he speaks, he laughs, he celebrates with us, and he even empathizes with us in our pain and when we hurt. Yes, this relationship with this God, it's going to go on forever. It's going to go on beyond the grave. In fact, it won't be fully realized until then, but make no mistake this morning, eternal life begins the very moment a person decides to surrender their life to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Eternal life, a relationship with God, is available right now. Right now. That's the good news that we have to share with people. And Jesus is counting on us, his disciples, to make this good news known to as many people as we possibly can. In fact, it is the very reason that you exist at this time and in this place. I'm not sure I can say it any better than Jeff said it this morning, but I've got some time to fill, and so here we go, Jeff. But it is. It is why you exist right here in San Jose or Campbell or whatever suburb you live in. It's why you live in the neighborhood you live in. It's why you work at the place you work at. It's why you go to the school you go to. It is to make Jesus known. In fact, Jesus says this in his prayer, John chapter 17 and verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And even though it was the 11 disciples that he spoke those words over, those words are just as true about us as well we too are a sent people it's our job really it's our privilege to let people know that they can now be reconciled back to god because of jesus's work on the cross and paul reminds us of this in second corinthians chapter 5 in verse 19 through 20 And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Wherever life takes us, this is the work that we are to be about. This is job one. And I need to be reminded of this on a regular basis because it's so easy for at least me and I imagine for many of you to forget the importance of this. And sometimes it begins to feel like really the most important thing in life is was to make a good salary or it's to live a comfortable lifestyle or maybe it's to get a good education or maybe it's to raise successful kids. And there's nothing wrong with those things per se, but they must not be our primary focus in life. Making disciples in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. That's job one. That's the primary work that we're to be about. And and let me state the obvious. This isn't supposed to be the work we're about for just a seasonal life. Sometimes you hear people say, you know what, I was really all about that when I was a brand new Christian, when I was on fire. Boy, I was really after it at that point in time. No, no, no. We, like Jesus, are to bring God glory by being about this all the way to the very end. And we don't let up. A recent article that was published in Christian Chronicle entitled "A Final Song: A Familiar End," Minister Paul Coaster reflected on the closing of a church that he's preached out for 19 years. And this is what he said upon the reflection of that, clo- that church closing down because of a lack of members. He said this, the first generation is fired up, enthusiastic, and dedicated to God. The second generation goes through the motions. The third generation doesn't care. But well, this word stopped me in my tracks when I read this this week. There are far many churches that are closing their doors, and we can state a lot of different reasons, but I wonder how much it comes right back to this. Because we've lost our focus, and perhaps because we've lost our fire. And at this particular point, I, I, get, I, I even hesitated to preach this message because I feel like if I was in the audience, I'd be thinking, it's time to move on, Sean. You've hit this theme over and over for the past several weeks, and I, I get your weariness, and we will move on, I promise, in some regards, onto other themes and other things that we're going to preach about, but I hope we never move on from this emphasis that this is what we're to be about as a church. You know, I've heard some of our elders reflect, and I love their spirit. They've said this. They've said that there have been some conversations where people have expressed that in the past two, three years at Campbell, there's been some wondering, will this church survive or not? And the elders have said, as a group, not once did that Conversation even crossed their minds because they have this deep trust and faith in God. And I appreciate that about our elders so much, just their trust and faith in God. And I share that, that God is faithful. But I also kind of have this other view as well that says this, but God's not obligated to us if we're not faithful and so we have to be faithful to the work that he's entrusted us to do if we want our doors to stay open and more importantly so that we get to continue to be the salt and light in this community that he's placed us here to be and so let's never lose sight of this responsibility that he's given us and in this prayer Jesus acknowledges that this work of helping people come back to relationship with God it's not easy work in fact Jesus goes on to pray in verse 14 I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And again, Jesus is praying specifically over the eleven in this particular moment, but every generation of Christ's followers, they experience some degree of hostility. Now, the hostility we face as a people, it doesn't compare to what those 11 disciples faced, and it doesn't compare to what so many people in other places in the world face today. But I think you can see that in so many ways in our culture, there seems to be a growing sense of hostility. That, praise be to God, we're not facing physical persecution yet, at least. But it's commonplace to hear that people are being ostracized because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We live in a society that holds tolerance as one of, if not its greatest values. But there seems to be a growing or an increasing sense of intolerance to those who have a Christian faith. And if you've not faced it yet, don't be surprised when you bump into people who decide that they really don't want to associate with you, or they badmouth you, or perhaps they just blackball you simply because you follow Jesus. And in this reality, It can cause a person to be hesitant about doing the work that God has entrusted us to do, right? And it makes sense. It's totally understandable. Nobody wants to be rejected. Nobody wants that feeling. So what we do oftentimes is this. We rationalize, here's what I can do. I can live like Jesus but never say anything about Jesus, and that's good enough. Does that ever go through your mind? You ever hear somebody say that? You know, well, I just, I just live like Jesus, and people are going to get it. Hey, living like Jesus is so very, very important. It really begins there. Because if we don't live like Jesus, what we say, it really doesn't matter. So we want to live like Jesus to the best of our ability. But for people to understand the good news, to know the good news, eventually we have to open up and we have to talk about Jesus. We have to share the good news with people. So where do you find the confidence in this type of society to actually have that conversation. Where's it come from? I want to share with you a simple illustration. I don't know if it connects or not. I I hope it does in some way. But what I thought about was this. I thought about moments in my life in which as a young kid or teenager, I needed to have a conversation with a teacher or a coach in which I didn't know the direction that that conversation was going to go. Any Any of you had conversations like that when you were young? You just had to step into it. Do you remember how it made you feel? Your heart would race, your mouth would go dry, your hands would get clammy, right? You had to have a conversation about a grade. You didn't think it was fair. You had to have a conversation with a coach about playing time because you didn't think you were being treated right. And you were nervous about it, but you wanted to have the conversation. What gave you the courage to step into it, to have that conversation? For me, this is what it was. It was knowing that I had parents who cared about me and they were with me. When I was really young, my parents would be in the seat sitting next to me when I'd have that conversation. When I got a little bit older, my parents were in the car in the parking lot waiting for me as I came out of wherever I was having that conversation so that they could support me. When I got even older and I was driving on my own, even though they weren't present physically there, I knew this, as soon as I got home, they would be waiting at the kitchen table ready to say, how did it go? How can we help? How can we support you? This is what gave me the courage to step in those conversations. Parents who loved me, cared about me, and would protect me if need be. That's what helps me. And that's what should give us confidence to step into having conversations about Jesus, even in a hostile world. Our Father is nearby. Listen to what Jesus prayed on that Thursday night John 17, verse 9, 11 through 12, and then verse 15. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Again, a prayer prayed for the eleven, but just as, just as true for us as well, that we have been too left to the Father's care. The one thing you'd be absolutely certain of this morning is this, is that our Heavenly Father, the one who created the universe, the one who raised the dead, he is more than capable of protecting us from the attacks of the evil one. Now, does that mean that we won't ever suffer because of our faith? I would love to say, yes, that's what it means, but history proves proves otherwise, right? Because we know this, those 11 that he prayed over on that Thursday night, all but one of them, all but one of them died for their faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, this isn't very encouraging, Sean, right? (laughs) Right? And so, what, I mean, what do we find? How can this encourage us to be confident to have these kind of conversations when that's the outcome? And I'd simply say this. There is comfort in knowing there is nothing, I mean, nothing that the evil one can do, not persecution, not temptation, that our Heavenly Father cannot see us through. That there's absolutely nothing that the evil one that can, can do to us that is going to put us out of reach of God's loving care. I love these words of Paul. I'm sure many of you do as well. Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I I love that. Hello, here's the Apostle Paul, and he's out teaching about Jesus and sharing the good news and telling people you can be reconciled back to God. And daily he's met with hostility, and daily he has to fear for his life, and daily people are plotting against him. And he says, you know what? I'm not a victim. I'm not afraid. I'm a conqueror in Jesus Christ because he's with me, because there's nothing the evil one can do to to take me away from his loving presence. And so that's the assurance that we have. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, but it is amazing what separates us from each other. Such little things. Too often simple misunderstandings, too often differences of opinion, too often poorly chosen words, too often hurtful behaviors destroy relationships. And not only for our sake, but for the sake of the gospel, we must do everything we possibly can to make sure that this does not happen. Because Jesus, in his final prayer, reminds us that one of the greatest evidence that we have to testify to the world about the truth of Jesus is our oneness. He says in verse 20 and 22, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Is unity in the church easy? No, it is not. We all bring to this place our various preferences about worship, our political leanings, our cultural norms, our personal desires, and our own degree of nuttiness. And if I have stated to you before the fact that this place doesn't erupt in a huge fight week in and week out, testifies to the truth that God's love is in us, Since God's love is for us. So how do we protect the unity that we enjoy? We must strive to relate to one another as the Father and Son relate to one another. How did the Son relate to the Father? The Son said this, here's all I want. I want to please you. I want to honor you. I want to bring you glory. I want to serve you. How did the Father relate to the Son? The Father said this, I'm here for you. I love you, I care about you, I'll always be with you. And this, this is the way we are to relate to each other. When we walk into this place, the number one question that should be on our minds is this, how do I love, how do I serve, how do I honor, how do I bring glory to, how do I sacrifice for my brothers and sisters in Christ that are right here in this place who are on mission with me? That's what should be on our minds. It's when other things are on our minds, things like, well, who gets to be on stage most? Or, or well, how many times are they going to sing my favorite song this morning? Or, hey, what are they going to do with this drum kit up here? Or, hey, you know, different things like that. That's when things go haywire. And so we keep our focus on pleasing each other. You see, when mutual submission exists, that's when unity exists. So we walk into this place saying, how can I meet the needs of the person around me? How can I make sure they're blessed this morning in the worship experience? How can I make sure that they're more important than I am? Because I want unity. And that's what Jesus prayed for. As we set out to fulfill this purpose of bringing glory to God, Please know that on that Thursday night some 2,000 years ago, he prayed specifically for you. He prayed that we would be united to each other, but he also prayed this, that one day we would be reunited with him. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is in his most stressful moment and you're on his mind. He's praying, God, this is what I want more than anything else for these people and every generation that comes after them to one day see me in all of my glory and to be with me. And may this, may this promise, may this hope of one day being with Jesus in all of his glory give us the confidence, give us the initiative to go out and do the work he's entrusted us to do to the absolute very end. May this prayer, may this word, may this hope inspire us to live a bigger and a better life.